Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. My hairbrush, where is my hairbrush? And immediately I went, oh, I think I took it. Have you ever slipped a fancy salt shaker into your handbag during a boozy evening meal at a restaurant lured in by temptation, a brief bout of kleptomania? Or perhaps you've been on the receiving end. Your cleaner finishes their shift and where the hell did the cheese knife go? While most people don't suffer from true kleptomania, which is a genuine illness, many have felt the urge to take something of little to no value. The question of why is rarely fruitful. It just comes coupled with a shrug. There's no reason, an oddly unnecessary and surprisingly harmless endeavour that barely even feels like stealing. But what if there is a reason? What would it be? The kleptomaniac we're talking about today is the character of Noel from the brilliant debut novel Hotel 21, and I'm delighted to say that the book's author, Centre Rich, is my guest today. Chapter 1, A Sense of Control. Noel is a model employee, or so she'd have you think. The trouble is that she can't help taking a little souvenir as she cleans the hotels where she works. Nothing of value, just tokens of happy, normal lives. A lipstick, a hair clip, some tweezers. And by the time the guest has noticed, she's long gone. As she starts at her 21st hotel, she is determined to beat her record of more than one month in a five-star hotel before suspicion falls on her. But when she meets her new colleagues, her plans are complicated. They make her wonder what it might be like to have real friends, people to stick around for. But will she? The character of Noelle has a brilliant origin story, as Centre explains. So the spark, so I wasn't planning on writing a book. As you know, I'm a screenwriter and that would be my go-to. And I know that you're a screenwriter as well. So, you know, it's a completely different medium. Uh, So I hadn't thought about writing a book, but then I was staying in a small hotel in Lisbon and I accidentally annoyed the hotel cleaner when I didn't leave until way after lunch. Right. Standing outside the hotel room with her arms crossed beside her trolley, giving me a pretty nasty look. And I felt really bad. I was like, oh, my God, if I'd known, I would have stepped outside the room, let her come in, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went off for the day, came back that evening. When I got back that evening, my hairbrush was missing, right? But I was like, my hairbrush, where is my hairbrush? And immediately I went, oh, I think I took it. It was a revenge lift. Like she's completely stuffed up my night. <laughs> like my, what am I going to do without my hairbrush? Uh, you know, my hair was dripping wet and I got really like intrigued. I was like, what does she, you know, is this something she does a lot? And then I started thinking, yeah, you know, why? And then I started thinking maybe she, you know, that she had this power over me and that maybe it was because she wanted some power over her own life. This kind of gave her a modicum or a sense of control. So I was thinking about this, thinking about this. I don't think she took my hairbrush now. I think I probably lost it in transit. But, you know, I just jumped to this exciting conclusion for me. So I was thinking about TV, first of all, and a screenplay was going around and around. And then 
three days later or two days later, I just wrote the first 4,000 words in first person because I really wanted to be her. And and I knew roughly I wanted it to be her first day of her 21st cleaning job and how she'd got there and how she operated. And it just went from there. She's very clever because she's your own conclusion about your hairbrush, which I assume you never found. But I'm sure there were other items of more value in your hotel room than what went missing. And and that really is the genius at the heart of Noelle and her modus operandi is that she's stealing things. And I love the way that you document throughout the book. You take us from hotel to hotel. You tell us how long she was there for. And you also tell us what she took. And some of the things you think, why why are you stealing an unopened condom, for example? What possible value could that have for you? But she's taking things that whoever she's taking them from might just assume they either didn't bring with them or they misplaced or like the knife I told you about, I probably, you know, in a in a fugue of cleaning up, probably scraped it along with the rest of the cheese into the bin and it's gone, right, forever. So there's no real suspicion. That's part of how she's getting away with this, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. She takes things she hopes no one will notice are missing, but then she gradually ups her game. But the reason I thought the cleaner had taken my brush wasn't because of value, it was to get back at me, you see. I thought it was a revenge. Well, you know, she's ruined my day. I'm going to ruin her night. I'm going to take her hairbrush. That would really mess her up, won't it? I love it's so it's as a revenge played. I love the revenge lift, but it's so it, it sounds low grade, but I don't have hair. You do. Your hair's really nice. And I'm sure that losing a hairbrush is a terrible thing for you. It's very it's not terrible. It's really annoying. <laughs> it was really annoying. I had to go out and buy a new one. Uh, like, you know, it's a very small problem, but I was, I did, I was sure that I had it, but I don't know whether I did now, you know, I mean, you know, I don't think she took it. I really don't. I don't think a cleaner would do that, no matter how annoyed she was. But obviously it started the the ball rolling. Yeah. What if she just took things that people might not notice are missing? Like how many things do we have in a toilet bag that we don't know we even have? And she takes them because they they become like religious relics to her. They're, she keeps them in her trunk and in this trunk in her shabby flat, all the things that, that she's ever taken. And she does keep a little book with everything in it. But this is proof to her that her system is working, that she is okay. She is a person and existing, you know, and I think that that's that's why she keeps them and that's why they matter to her. We'll come on to what it is she's trying to escape from and why she's doing this and, and what getting control over her life back means and, and why it means that. We'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later on. But you established the precinct really, really quickly. She is on, on the day that we meet her, she's on hotel number 21. Um, she has worked at 20 other hotels for varying degrees of length of time she has had some gigs that last just a single day and she has a rule about if she feels uncomfortable on day one she's not staying around so she has a very good spider sense for how much she might be able to get away from she's also clearly very good at lying and you know almost pathologically actually she's she's really interesting because she is 
every single time we really meet her, she is presenting an image of herself that we suspect initially is not true. And then over the course of the book, we learn is true. When I was spending time with her, I was hugely conflicted because at times I really wanted to know what it was she was stealing and I wanted to know why. And then the more I learned about why she is stealing and the extremely difficult relationship she has with her mother, which was a childhood relationship over which she had no control, the more I sort of wanted her to keep stealing and get, even though I knew that was the worst possible therapy for her, that's not the answer. The answer isn't lifting nail scissors or hairbrushes. The answer is actually talking about these issues. And it was only really partway through that I was like, Noel, you need to you need to stop doing this. And so this precinct that you create, you're almost putting in a, into a position where you're saying, I am going to make you confront your past and I'm going to put you in a position that you feel really, really uncomfortable with. And I love the way that you did that because we love characters that make decisions we disagree with. And she does all that in spades. You really put her through the ringer in Hotel 21, don't you? Well, I think in terms of story, for me, you know, and I'm sure, especially in screenwriting, I'm sure that you agree with this, Mark, is you you want to know why now, why this character, why now, why now, why? what is the crisis point now that's going to transform this person? So we want to pick her up in the mess, in the middle of the chaos, and we want to then go on this journey with her, and that that's what I wanted to do. And I know you were saying that she's a liar because she presents a different version of, of, of herself the whole time. But do you not think people do that anyway? Oh, I do. A hundred percent. And I'm so glad you raised that because this comes up time and time again. She lies about things overtly. So she lies about the fact that someone in the family has just died. That's an oh, excuse yeah. to get her to the next hotel. But you're right. Yeah. She does play a different version of herself in each of the hotels. And I'm sure that if there were to be a Hotel 22, I hope there isn't. But if there were to be a Hotel 22, she would absolutely do that. We all do this. We're both doing this right now. You know, this is part yeah. of, of being alive. She's adapting. It's that whole classic first day on the job trope, isn't it? You walk into an environment, you hang back a bit and you think, I'll just see how this unfolds and then I'll decide which version of me I want to be. Yeah, I mean, it's the same, you know, you start a new job, you don't know people, so you're just going to play a bit cool to start with, say hi to everyone, you're going to get level of the ground, you're going to work out, can I can I swear? Is it okay to tell a joke? Like, what what's the kind of story here? So you kind of, you know, and then you read like different people, you have to get on with everyone. So you you work carefully. You know, and I just think that's really human. So I don't really have a problem with her. She's very aware that she has to do it because she's in survival mode. She's been in survival mode since she was a child and she's still in that mode right until the very end, right till the very end where she, well, she's still there really, but she's making a step to try and heal and change and have a different life, you know, and we hope, we hope. Chapter two. Who am I? I am stricken to my core. Am I like my mother, an empty fake person with no identity? My hands go cold and tremble. If I was asked to sum up the entire book 
in a couple of sentences, it would be this moment. When we get a chance to reflect on Noelle's childhood, it's easy to see how it influenced her later in life, how everything boils down to a need for control, or because of her very difficult relationship with her mother, who was both abusive physically and verbally, beating her and constantly drinking. But we also see this interesting fear unravel when Noelle wanders for the first time into the supermarket where her mother works and she sees a totally different person, a decent, hardworking, kind, sympathetic human being, the mother she wished she had been. And Noelle realises that her actions put her in danger of becoming like her mum, someone who doesn't know who she really is, always playing a role, wearing a mask as she says herself, an empty, fake person with no identity. Yeah, no, I I think that's a really a great way of looking at it, Mark. And I think what that is for her, the issue isn't which Noel am I going to be now or in this hotel or for this person and in this situation to get what I want. The question is, who is she actually? Because she doesn't know. She doesn't know who, who she is. And while I don't believe she thinks she'll she will be her mother because her mother is a monster I do think that her question is well her mother doesn't know who she is and that for her is obviously a big fear because I think to know yourself and to say I am this person I have an identity I'm consistently like this so I am this person which is what an identity is it was very important for everybody very important for human beings and she doesn't have that And she can see that her mother didn't either. And that's obviously a big fear for her, that she will just end up with no sense of who she is. When she's at Hotel 21, she perhaps for the first time, at least to my reading of it, is part of a social circle that makes her deeply uncomfortable, but also very alive at the same time. She's probably never spent this much time in the company of other people. She comes across very much as a recluse. She lives in these flats and bedsits that she rents across the country. And the only real bit of consistency is the trunk in which she keeps these things she's looted. And I'd love to explore why she's keeping them. But what you do is you put her into this social circle with a bunch of people who, in the hands of a less experienced writer, would have felt like walk-on minor character parts, but they're not. They're really well-drawn. They are in a way, as complete a set of screw-ups as Noelle is herself. And I and I love that. And I think what Noelle experiences is the fact that actually these are just a bunch of people like me and they're all fighting battles we know nothing about, right? I loved the way that you put her through that because that can't have been easy for her. But when we meet Phil et al. and all of these people, they're, they're all experiencing battles that are similar to Noelle's, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're all very human people they're all in their own chaos i believe that we're all in the chaos mark we're yeah. all in the chaos and we're all struggling through and that's just what it is to be human and that's the way it is and there's also this idea that you don't have to be super brilliant smart successful rich to be exceptional and i think they're all really exceptional people i really admire all of them <laughs> and for Noelle, she's already had a taste in Hotel 20 of being outside the group. And that was a lesson for her. She realized that despite the fact that she's fake and she puts it on and she's always managing everything and making sure she doesn't get caught and all these things, despite that, 
she does actually like being part of the cleaning team wherever she is. But she didn't realize that until she was outside the group in Hotel 20. So when she comes into Hotel 21, one of the things is she doesn't want that to happen again. She doesn't want to be sidelined with Julia, the supervisor, and everyone goes, oh, well, you're friends with the supervisor, so we, you know, we're not going to talk to you. So she's very, so she doesn't want to be left out. So when she doesn't go on the work night out and they're a bit annoyed, Marley's a bit annoyed with her, she really has to try and get back in there. So this is a real crisis point for her. This is she's learning. She learned something in Hotel 20 and now she's worried that's going to happen again in Hotel 21. And these women shake her up, electrify her, right? Bring her into sort of more of a land of the living. And this is her journey. I loved the precinct of Hotel 21 because you're right. You you do that very early on. She doesn't she, she's learned her lesson, but she doesn't go on the first work night out. But she also she also commits the cardinal sin of being put immediately on the penthouse floor, on floor seven, which everyone else on the lower floors is, is really, really angry uh, about. And you, you give her this opportunity. So she's friends with some of them and not with others and then decides mistakenly, I guess, because she herself realizes she's made a mistake and owns up about it and then does go out, you know, on the second night, gets horrendously drunk, ends up in a cubicle fooling around. And I loved that. But it's a be careful what you wish for moment, isn't it? Because when she does embrace that social circle, all of this stuff just comes at her. You get other people's problems and other people's lives and screw ups. Absolutely. And, you know, for a hero's journey, if, if you want, for want of a better term, she now has to decide if she's going to be brave enough to make that, that journey out of the wilderness, and this is it. She's challenged now and she's getting a taste of a different life. And does she want to stay? Does she want to go? And is she going to be brave enough? I think she's really brave. I think she's smart. And I think she's resourceful and resilient and very brave because we don't all want to take that journey. You know, it's very hard. They say, don't they? You have to bring your character kicking and screaming through their character art backwards through a hedge kind of thing, right? Yeah. And this is what she's, this is what she's going through. Chapter three, to be significant. The trunk where Noelle keeps all of her stolen souvenirs is a fascinating plot device, a reminder of that thrill, that excitement of stealing. But does she lock the stolen items away for safekeeping or out of shame? What begins as a fun collection of meaningless items becomes an ever greater burden on her when she begins to make friends and invites them to her house. When Phil asks what's in the trunk, the risk of being found out takes the thrill away and makes it more of a thriller. It becomes such a powerful metaphor, a life dedicated to stealing for pleasure, only for that pleasure to fade. And I found this dynamic fascinating, how letting people into your life opens the door to your secrets. That's the risk of friendship. Well, I don't think she was expecting them to come to her house. Now, she did ask Phil round, that's true, but she tried to cover it up. And she wanted Phil to come so much that she was willing to risk that. But it is locked, you know. But then they turn up, don't they? They just yeah. arrive. And she's like, what are you all doing here? And this yeah. idea that they come in, they're the unwanted house guests. They come yeah. into her house and they're looking around, they're sitting down and she's looking, she's <laughs> like, what are they doing? Sitting in my dirty armchair and trying to squeeze into my tiny kitchen. Like she doesn't, she doesn't get it. 
why they want to be there. But yeah, I mean, the trunk, I mean, you know, we've all got our trunks, right? We do. We all have our trunks that we hide, the, our patterns, our little things that we like to do. We don't want to change. I mean, this is the symbol of her old life and the part of her that does not want it to be any different to the way that it is now. Yeah. Which is why she still packs up and why she still goes, right? I, I love that. As I said to you, it, it really is such a great metaphor for everything that she's going to. And when you think about it, her entire adult existence has been really a form of trespass into other people's lives through the hotel rooms that that she you give her the one thing that would cause her the most amount of anxiety which is they all turn up en masse and trespass into her home yes yes i mean and and that needs to happen you know yeah. that needs to happen and she needs to know what it feels like to have people that want to be hanging out of your house no matter how shit it is yeah and Absolutely. how rubbish it is. They want to be there because they care about you. And and that's that's a new feeling for her. And it moves me greatly when that happens. Oh, completely. I, I recently ran a workshop that was titled Villains, Every Hero Needs One. And yeah. I wanted to ask you about Noelle's mother because you've created, as you say, she's a monster and she is. And it's deeply uncomfortable to read what one human being can do to another the fact that one human being has given birth to that other human being and then still treats them like that so you imagine that there is some form of deep deep underlying problem that her mother has been through at some point because you don't come into the world as a monster you give her one moment one beautiful beautiful moment of redemption which comes in the form not of her playing a role. She may have been playing a role. I don't know. But this isn't her as the Tesco supermarket version of her mother, the idealized version. This is her confronting her boyfriend, her lover, whatever, who is clearly in some way trying to come on or come in between her and her daughter. And you do it brilliantly as a smell. It's kind of those, those Proust Madeline type smell in which she wanders into room 709 and smells this aftershave that takes her back to her childhood and a guy called Roy. And Roy is clearly a big, big threat to Noel. And I loved the fact that you gave her mother that moment so that we could all see she's not just a monster. And I wanted to understand how important was it for you that your villain, that this monster had some form of redeeming feature, because I wondered whether otherwise she's just that kind of trope, that stereotypical villain that doesn't have their own backstory. You gave me a moment in which that purest nugget of, of a second or two, she was a mother, a loving mother. And I love that. How important was it for you to show that? Yeah, well, for a start, I don't think her mother knows or is aware that she is such a monster. That's our words for her, right? Yeah. Because we're looking in at it, like she's she has a drink problem, she's damaged, whatever. So yeah, but we look at her and think she's um, a monster. And there, there is that redeeming feature, but there were a few other ones as well. When she dried Noelle's hair at the supermarket, the time when she took it to get a photograph taken, the fact that she called her Noel and it was so close to Christmas, despite the fact she gives her a different story. There are a few yeah. 
little things. And I had this interesting chat with my mum at the time, who is a psychotherapist. And she said that a lot of the times when someone loses somebody, somebody dies, they can only think about all the good things, even if those good things are few. Sometimes, not always, but often, she said, it's almost like the person dies and all the crap just disappears and they just remember sometimes even the fantasy of what mm. this person is like. So I think for Noelle, what she experiences, and she's kind of annoyed about it, why does she keep remembering the five good things this woman ever did? Mm. Whether or not, like, there might have been more, but I don't think so. And the reason when she says those things as well, when she's in, she's at Rose's house and she's trying to work out what is wrong with her, why she's having all these feelings and what does it mean? Why can't she hate her mother? And then she realizes that what is the significance of a lifetime with somebody, well, a lifetime, 17 years with somebody and all you, you can count on one hand the things that maybe they did that weren't in the monster territory. Is it significant enough? Is it significant enough to say that person had love, love for me, or is a good person? There's quite a lot of good and evil kind of theme going through the book as well. And I find that really interesting. What does it mean to be a good person? You know, what does it mean to have love in you? What, what, what does it take to be significant, scientifically significant? What, how many things do you need do you need one a day do you need one a week certainly not five in 17 years and yeah. I think that's the point that she gets to it's not significant enough it just doesn't add up it's not enough it's interesting because we think about Noelle's own moral code even as a thief or a kleptomaniac or whatever term you want to use she has taker of things taker of things a taker of things I love this <laughs> She has her own moral code, doesn't she? There are things, I mean, okay, she's rationalized this in terms of what she could get away with taking, but she's very clear about what she will and what she won't take. Not because to take something of extreme value would be really obvious, but also because she doesn't wish to really inflict, you know, harm on, no. on people. She is, if there is such a thing as a, as a morally strict taker of things, she's it, isn't she? So she's living this day to day. I think so. I don't, she doesn't take for material gain and she doesn't take to annoy people, but she will up the risk when it's time to leave or she's getting a bit antsy or, you know, so when she takes a hairbrush, uh, she knows, she knows, but she wants to do it. She wants to leave, but she wants to finish the cycle properly. She doesn't want to just up and leave. So she's going to, she's going to bring in a complaint. But yeah, no, definitely. And sometimes she just gets a feeling about people. I'm not going to take from these people. They're nice people, you know, yeah. or there's something about the guy in the room or the woman. And she goes, you know what? I'm taking something from this person. As yeah. I was reading the novel and I, I had read the press release that came with the proof copy that I was sent, but I had forgotten whilst I was reading that, that it had been optioned for television. And I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about that, because as I was reading, I couldn't escape thinking this is reading really, really brilliantly on the page. I would love to see this on screen because those moments where she almost gets caught, those moments where she has a split second to put something into her 
into her cleaner's apron, her cleaner's uniform and, and get out. They're really tense and they would look extremely dramatic. What, if anything, can you tell us about the deal that you've done? I mean, are things underway or has it just been optioned or are we about to start filming? Where, where, where are you in the process? Hey, well, then? The first thing I want to say is when I started writing this book, I thought, oh, the best thing about this is it's not a script. <laughs> I'm like, it, was, it was so liberating to be able to write in first person right sure. it's impossible to do tv and film like that really unless yeah. you're going to do a load of i mean it's hard it's hard so i felt very liberated and free but obviously my instincts would have kicked in with the structure and stuff like that so but yeah so the deal was done last year and uh it was a preempt deal so they got it from a scout and right. we had a call they were really great, really lovely, enthusiastic, very smart. And I was just like, all day long, let's do it. Because this, you know, there's no guarantee that anyone else is going to want it either. So, you know, I, I just felt like these guys loved it and I really liked them. So, so this is where we are at. It's an option and I'm waiting to hear what's going to happen with that. I think they're looking for a showrunner. And then I'm hoping that I can be part of the story room. But, you know, take nothing for granted in this business, Mark. No, but you have created an opportunity for yourself that I think is incredible. If people are listening to this episode on the day of broadcast, Hotel 21 is out later this month. As a novel, it's stunning. As a debut novel, it is even more so. Centre Rich, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. Really great talking to you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Centre Rich for today's episode and to recap... What have we learnt? Be inquisitive and curious at all times. As writers, this is our bread and butter. Let seemingly innocuous events, like a cleaner potentially stealing your hairbrush, take you on a journey. Let it stew in your mind. It may turn into something. Why now? What's the crisis point your character is facing, and why is now the time to visit it? What will be the moment of transformation? As Centre says, these are all questions you should be conscious about when you begin putting pen to paper. And finally, a chat with Centre's psychotherapist mum led her to develop a fascinating plot point for Noel. When you have questions or you want to add realism and weight to the actions of your characters, remember to turn to the experts, especially if you're lucky enough to have some close to you. That's a wrap on Series 7. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events, titled Inside Stories, are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. We'll be back in a few weeks with Series 8. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. And where the hell is my cheese knife? This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.